millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. We are living now in the age where a storm is raging around us. And because I was a complete Zionist. Really? Of course. I was the last generation to be educated for empire. There is a stubborn vindication of Zionism in Western establishment circles. Uh, what accounts for this? All the ingredients for a catastrophe had been brought together. The educational system, journalism, the whole entertainment industry, everything had, was completely dominated by Zionism. And Charlton Heston was a nice Anglo-Saxon <laughs> guy. Is a hundred years of suffering, conflict, wars, devastation, uprootings. Everyone can see what is happening who is not encased in the Zionist illusion. Zionism is the ideology that underpins the barbarism that has been meted out on the Palestinians, its latest chapter being the slaughter that is currently happening in Gaza. Yet its ideals remain respectable in establishment circles. In the United States, political leaders fall over one another to declare their undenying loyalty to this creed. And in Britain, there has been a long tradition of Christian Zionism that spans back to the early 20th century and the Balfour Declaration. My guest today is Ahmed Paul Keeler. He argues that Zionism has become embedded into the Western mindset through education and culture. It relies upon a Darwinian hierarchy that places Europeans at the top and Arabs and others as savages and less than human, terms that have been uttered in recent weeks as events unfold. Ahmed was born in 1942 and was brought up 
in a conservative upper-middle-class Anglo-Catholic family. He belongs to the last generation that was brought up to serve the British Empire. Ahmed Keeler was a visiting fellow at the Centre of Islamic Studies, University of Cambridge, from 2015 to 2023, and was a distinguished fellow at the Faculty of Leadership and Management, University Sans Islam Malaysia in 2016. Ahmed Kila, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome to the Thinking Muslim. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, and I think we've got a really interesting topic to discuss today: Zionism and the Western mindset. Now, Ahmed, uh, as I said, I want to explore how Westerners view Zionism. In recent weeks, uh, we've seen the horrible scenes from Gaza. And I was uh, caught by a fabulous monologue that you presented on YouTube, Zionism's 10 Disruptions. And you stated in that monologue that Israel became possible because of the support of Great Britain, the Holocaust that took place in Germany, and the power of America after World War II. Now, I'm, I'm interested in exploring this further. Let's start with Zionism as a concept. Please, can you explain what it is and maybe how it differs to that of Judaism as a faith. Zionism came out of the cauldron of ideas and ideologies of the 19th century. This was the time when the world was, the modern world was really being formed. The world we now know is, was being formed. And it was the time when uh, nationalism was, was taking its present form, where the philosophers were busy trying to define humanity in terms of races, mm. where major ideologies like Marxism and fascism, these were all being formulated, mm -hmm. and nihilism. Mm -hmm. And it was a time when the secular mind was very busy reorganizing the world in order for it to be able to function as an industri as, as industrially based societies. You got the marriage, uh, the, the, the toxic marriage that took place between nationalism, Germany, German nationalism, and racial identity, Aryanism, mm. the master race. And you got this terrifying phenomenon of Nazism. Yeah. Zionism was also constructed by putting together these different aspects. Mm. The first thing was to claim the Jews as a race. The second was to seek the Jews to have a nation, to, have, to be a nation to have a, a, a national state. And these are two other sort of fundamental, basic structure, if you like, of Zionism, mm. in that Zionism, the founder of Zionism, uh, Herzl, was a secular Jew. It's Theodor Herzl. Theodor Herzl. Yeah. And he was a secular Jew, and he brought out his great work, his... his, his uh, uh, the founding document of Zionism mm. in 1896, right. the Jewish state. Uh -huh. And in that document, 
he talks about looking at two places for a possible Jewish state. Mm -hmm. One was Argentina mm -hmm. and the other was Palestine. So you can see from the very outset, this was secular. Right. He wanted to create a modern state. He was absolutely in love with modern science, mm. with the modern world. And he wanted a, 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 a tremendous Jewish modern state where the Jews could come together. And why did they need to come together? They needed to come together because of anti-Semitism. Mm. This was the great magnet for his idea. Because the Jews had been persecuted in Christendom forever. And that persecution was real. Now, in the uh, European countries, there had been the emancipation that had taken place. So the Jews had done very well in terms of uh, the, the secular world. And they were not particularly, they were not in the slightest bit interested in this idea of Zionism because they were integrationists. They were a part of the society. They were English or French or German or whatever they may be. Yeah. Now, the added ingredient that came about with Zionism was that once he had chosen Palestine, and he chose Palestine so that it would attract, it would sort of create a resonance with the Jews. Mm. Once he'd chosen that, another kind of Zionism came into being. And that was the religious Zionism, which was a very different to that of secular Zionism. Because as far as the religious Zionists are concerned, their interest was the promised land and the coming of the Messiah. In other words, the idea that if they could go and bring the nation of, Islam, of, of uh, Judaism, of Jews, back into the promised land, the Messiah would appear. Mm. This was their idea. So we have these two Zionisms that are born. Then there is another problem. Mm. The other problem is that Palestine is already inhabited. So you have the problem of the fact that what you are actually going to have to create is a colony. You're going to have to colonize Palestine, which has a settled population that's been there forever. And all the problems which, which account for, for colonial states, every colony that has been produced British, French, Spanish, whatever it may be, Portuguese, has always encountered the problem of the people who exist already and having to get rid of them in order to make way to produce your own control over that state. So from that very first idea of Zionism, back in the 18th, 19th century, sorry, the, yes, the 19th century, back in the 19th century, all the ingredients for a catastrophe had been brought together. And of course, what we witnessed is the unfolding of a catastrophe. Mm. Ahmed, Zionism remains a disputed notion amongst Jews. I mean, we've seen in the past months 
many practicing Jews that have taken exception uh, to the ideas of Zionism. What are their objections? This is a very important question. Right from the very beginning, Zionism was condemned by the orthodox mainstream Jews. Mm. In other words, the religious Jews. They absolutely abominated Zionism. Why? Because a fundamental tenet of Judaism is that there can be no return of the people of Israel to the Promised Land, to the Holy, to the to to to, to Jerusalem, mm. until the coming of the Messiah. So, for the Jews to return in a political manner is the worst sin that they can commit. It is, a, it is a, an abomination because basically it's taking on the role of the Messiah, right. saying we are the Messiah. So it's, it's, a sort of, it's a kind of gesture of such arrogance and it was utterly condemned. Now, what's interesting about your question is that it's only very recently that that understanding has actually been, people have been getting to understand it or or to know about it. And this is because the Zionists did an incredible job of putting across to the West the idea that they were the mainstream. And they remained a very marginal case right up until the Second World War. Mm. And it was the Holocaust that created this huge change. And after the war, Zionism became a fact, if you like, in the West. And they brilliantly marginalized the Orthodox by renaming them ultra-Orthodox. Otherwise, in other words, our our loony fringe. Mm. But they are the ones, they are the real Jews who have continued the same practice, the same understanding, and the same absolute... um, What they say about uh, Zionism is the harshest of any people who have ever said anything about Zionism. It is the Orthodox Jew. So this is where the extraordinary phenomenon of social media and YouTube and the work that you, people like yourself, are doing. Um, because the establishment in the West, the governing bodies, the educational system, journalism, the whole entertainment industry, everything had, was completely uh, dominated by Zionism, mm. the, idea, the Zionist ideas. And it's only now that the other voices are being heard. It's only now the Palestinian uh, narrative is being heard. So this is the extraordinary thing about the time we're now experiencing. Because uh, for me, the 
as as for all of us, the horror of what we're experiencing now is 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 is, is absolutely obvious. Yeah. It's plain. It's before our eyes. So this is where you, you, it's very very important to listen to the Orthodox Jews who are explaining why Zionism has been such a catastrophe. Mm. Because in my piece of 10 great disruptions, it has disrupted for 100 years all the different uh, communities that it came into touch with. Yes. And this is where um, you know, we are in a, a moment of change because nothing can be the same after, after this event. Now, that's really interesting. I mean, you've lived through the 60s and 70s where there was a growing uh, level of support towards the Palestinians, in particular amongst the left in, in America and the United Kingdom. But I take from your, your answer that this moment is greater in, uh, in, in, in terms of its uh, gravity than um, of those movements in the 60s. Well, that's very interesting. Because I was actually born in the 40s. I was born in 1942. Wow. So I grew up in the 40s and the 50s. Yes. And I was 18 in 1960. Wow. And I was basically at the age of, of 19 when I went on a, a road trip with yes. a friend of mine from school. Right. And we traveled through Germany and we traveled through to uh, um, Yugoslavia and to Turkey. And then we came back through Italy and France, etc. Yes. And in 1996, my mother died, and she had collected every piece of literature or, or anything that we'd sent to her, mm. every letter, every postcard. Right. And although I'm not a particularly good letter writer, <laughs> um, during that trip, I had written a number of postcards, and I received them back. And I was absolutely shattered. Why? What I said in them was just appalling. I can't. I wouldn't read them to you, but I will tell you the, the, what, what, what it was about. Yes, please. The first thing I discovered, which I had absolutely no recollection of, was that actually we were trying to get to Israel. Right. Israel was our goal. Uh, then we arrived in Turkey, and... Uh, I, my, I really so enjoyed Turkey. It was wonderful. There was no tourism then. And but the things I say about it are things like I say, well, the people are very rough and they're very sort of high-blooded. But um, they're so kind and when they, you, they get to know you, they, they really take you into their heart and things like that. Yeah. And then I talked about going into the area where St. Paul's had done all his great evangelism. And I said, it's a pity to see that all this place now is Mohammedanisms. And, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's all gone to that, uh, uh, that stupid and silly religion. Mm. And uh, then the biggest one was when I, we were coming back through Italy. And I said, because Italy was the one country at that time, especially southern Italy, yes. where there was a lot of uh, beggars. Ah. You know, people were begging because they were very poor. Yes. Nothing like this in Turkey. Ah. Nobody, uh, you know, approached you like this. You were surrounded by kids and things. And also it was, um, uh, you know, it was after the war. Mm. One didn't have a high opinion of the Italians. 
And I said the most terrible things about the Italians. Right. I literally, you know, said they were the most appalling people that had ever set upon the earth. Mm. Excepting they were second only to the Arabs. Really? And had you met have you and met I an Arab? had never really met an Arab. I had never been to an Arab country. Really? So yes. I thought to myself when I read that, I thought, the first thing I thought was I must never let anybody ever see these postcards. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, where did this come from? Yeah. How was I, at that moment in time, completely conditioned to see the Arabs in this way and to have this great desire to go to Israel? Mm. And then I thought about it. And because I was a complete Zionist, Really? Of course. I was, my mindset was such that as far as I was concerned, the um, Israelis were the heroes and the Arabs were the villains. So I want to explore that. Where did that come from? Was it through education? Was it through popular culture? How did you come to a view that Arabs were horrible people, that uh, Zionism uh, was a moral worldview. Where did, where did that come from? Well, I think uh, this is exactly the questions I started asking myself. Ah. Well, when did you ask yourself those questions? I mean, well, recently. I, I went into it thoroughly ah. uh, after I'd read these postcards. Okay, okay. I'd already been cleared of it yes. in the 1960s. Okay. Because as you say, yeah. what happened in the 1960s is that I was the last generation to be educated for empire. Ah. I went through this period of being taken from uh, home at the age of eight and being in a boarding school until 18, 10 years really? of boarding school. Yeah. And the curriculum had not changed uh, since before the war. They hadn't had time. And it was a time when l literally you were being educated to go out to anywhere in the world and to run an empire. That's so. As a bishop, as a, you know, as a judge, as an administrator, as a, as a colonel, and a, whatever. But it was, that was the educate, that was the mindset that was being prepared. And we believed, by the age of 12, 13, 14, I believed as uh, uh, the, the, um, the great Victorian educator, whose name I can't remember at the moment, but it doesn't matter, mm -hmm. uh, said the, 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 the English, not the British. The English yes. are the greatest and the most civilized people the world has ever known. And you believed that. I believed in it completely. And all my school, we, we believed in it. Yeah. We had, that, that was our utter conviction. You know, we'd won the war. Americans had come in late, you know. We knew nothing about the Russian front. <laughs> you know, all those films were coming out uh, in, in the 50s about, uh, you know, how we did it by sea and land and air and, you know, yes. uh, et cetera. And, and we believed it completely. And our um, education was in the heroes of England, from Alfred mm. and, and uh, uh, Sir Francis Drake and you know, playing the bowls, you know, when he's told that the Armada's been sighted. He says, Let, we'll finish the game of bowls and then we'll go and defeat the, the Armada. This fantastic. We knew nothing about India apart from the black hole of Calcutta mm. when the British were, you know, massacred. In a massacre, and of course, it was the white man's burden. Yeah. So our understanding, you know, we were the ones who got rid of slavery. William Wilberforce, 
The fact that we were the greatest slavers in, in no, we, we were the heroes. Right. So it was, it was building up this sense of heroism mm. in, in the person who would go out and rule the world. Mm. Of course, by the age of 18, uh, the empire was finished. Yeah. So I was out of a job. And I, I happened to go into the arts because that's the one area I was interested in. I was yeah. interested in theater. So during the 60s, I spent a period of complete re-education ah. and a part of that cultural revolution that was taking place in England at that time because everything was being upturned. We were attacking the church. We were attacking the, 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 the government. We were attacking everything. It was all being brought up. And at that time, you, you discovered Palestine. Right. That's when we, we made the great change. We suddenly saw there was another story. And the other story made a lot more sense. And then another of the films, which was incredibly important at that time, yeah. was the Battle for Algiers, uh -huh. which came out, wonderful Italian filmmakers, yes. who produced this amazing film, which was produced in just two or three years after the French left Algeria. And it was amazing. The Arabs started to become human. They became human beings yes. because that uh, aspect of the, the people being something less than human. Of course, you had to have complete um, uh, compassion and kindness and generosity, but they were not as you are. They were not as you were. You know, you didn't have them in your club or you didn't have... You know, this was a very powerful uh, aspect. Um, this whole business of, of, of bringing in um, that, that separation which you had in South Africa. Yes. You know, and you had it in all the British colonies. So that was my education. And when I looked at then about the Zionist aspect of it, first of all, you have to remember, as a Christian, yeah. the Old Testament is a part of our whole sacred education. Mm. All the prophets are our prophets leading to Jesus Christ. Mm. So we identify with them. And in the illustrated children's books, you know, Moses looks very familiar. You know, they all look very familiar. Yeah. And then, um, so that, that's one area where immediately the Jews are a part of it. Right. Then you have the, the other thing which is incredible was that the Zionists had done an incredible job with, with uh, Hollywood. Now, the film in the 1950s was the most powerful medium. Right. There was no television. Yes. Remember, no television, only the cinema. And the cinema had gone from the sort of black and white grainy things to these blockbusters, these incredible cinemascope, yes. all color, huge epics. And there were two major epics in the early 1950s, The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur, which is the story of this great Jewish hero. Mm. And both these parts were played by... Charlton Heston, was it? Charlton Heston. Yes. And Charlton Heston was a nice Anglo-Saxon <laughs> guy. Yeah. Moses. Yes. Anglo-Saxon. Yes. Ben-Hur, Anglo-Saxon. 
And the villains, of course, were always very brown and, uh, you know, Arab and yeah. furtive for us. Yes. And then you had the, the, the most powerful piece of Zionist propaganda ever produced, mm -hmm. and that was Exodus. Right. And this was the film where, uh, at the end of the war, the British were had put the tap on on these uh, uh, the Jews from the concentration camps coming into into uh, Palestine mm. because there were so many. The British weren't letting them in, the Americans weren't letting them in, so they were being held in a camp in Cyprus, so that they could then be given visas, etc., and then worked into. To, but there was a war going on between the Arabs and and, and the Zionists. Yes. And they made this film, which is a great hero who, who got this ship and 600 or so uh, Jews from the concentration camps in the boats to take it into Israel. Mm. And it's a story of how they were taken out of Cyprus and they, it was a real, you know, very exciting uh, story. And of course the villains are the British and the Arabs and the hero the leader of the Zionists was Paul Newman. Hmm. You know, so, so the, the whole uh, identification of the Israelis, of the Zionists, as being of us. Right. They, they were of us. They were Europeans. They were Westerners. That was the other powerful thing I discovered which was definitely, you know, a, a major ingredient in this. Then, of course, there was the Holocaust. Right. How could you? How could you? What can you say? The, the sense of just pure horror. I mean, when that came out in the 50s, and as children, I mean, I, I, I experienced this as a, as a, you know, teenager. Yeah. What, how can you react to that? What, 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 is, what can you say? of such industrialized horror that was perpetuated. So this, this ingredient, in a sense, sealed the whole rightness. You, how could you even speak against the idea of, of, the, Jewish, of, of the Jews having their own state? How could you argue against it? Impossible. Completely flooded over you. And it became a, a, a fact. It wasn't a, it's not something that was, there was, a, no, there was no argument about it. There was no doubts, nothing, no doubt entered one's mind. Yeah. And who were the Palestinians anyway? You know, this was a, you know, so, so this was a, a special case. And I think these three ingredients mm. probably were the ones which formed my desire to go to Israel as a 19-year-old and my complete contempt for the Arabs. I can't, you know, that, that's how I've been able to explain it. Now, um, uh, we started this um, portion of the conversation by uh, measuring where we are today and the sympathy that seems to have widened for the Palestinians today to that of the counter-cultural movements that you experienced in the 1960s. Mm. So 
do you feel this moment is greater than the moment of the 60s? Yes, because I think in the moment of the 60s, it was very much to do with that, that revolutionary fervor that existed in the 60s. Yeah. Now, what happened, and what happened to me was, of course, at the end of the 60s, I, I, I was introduced into Islam. Ah. So, um, basically, I went back to my childhood in the sense of my sort of moral compass and my, the world that I inhabited was much closer to the, the Christianity of my, uh, of my childhood than it was to the revolutionary mm. of the 60s that were tearing everything down the sexual revolution, which was upturning the whole moral order. Mm. So I was going back into a very powerful moral order, you know? And so I watched as that revolution of the 60s, where Sartre and Foucault and all these people were demolishing, I watched over the, the decades as that gradually that conquered the establishment and is now the establishment. But it got rid of certain things along the way, and one of them was the question of Palestine. It fell away from the establishment. So you've got an establishment now. It has all the worst possible ingredients. On the one hand, it has this kind of, you know, going back to the idea of being the best of English and Western, and yet they're supporting, you know, horrible moral ideas, terrible ideas. So there's a sort of, uh, a marriage between the worst of the 60s and the worst of an imperial people. You know, it's, it's a mentality which is very, un, very, very dangerous now. That's really fascinating. Now, we associate in particular the Republican right in the United States uh, to be very pro-Zionist. And we've got this section of Republicans who we call Christian Zionists. Mm. Um, I was fascinated to learn from your video that Christian Zionism has a precedence here in, in the UK and in Britain. And in particular, uh, some of our uh, political heroes, I suppose, in, in Britain, David Lloyd George, Arthur Balfour, who was prime minister and then became foreign secretary during the First World War coalition government, they were infamous or strong Christian Zionists. I mean, mm -hmm. Balfour, of course, was the originator of what became known as the Balfour Declaration. Mm. Um, can you talk me through what Christian Zionism is and why the British government during that period came behind the Zionist movement? Christian Zionism preceded Jewish Zionism. Really? And had a great influence upon it. Ah. Christian Zionism came out of the... Uh, Protestant sects. Yeah. Um, it was, again, very importantly, um, considered a heresy by the mainstream religions. So, again, it's another, uh, it's a, it, it's a, it's another um, aberrational uh, creation. So, mainstream Anglicanism would not have. Roman Catholicism. Right. The Russian Orthodox, right. the, the Greek Orthodox. The, uh, the the Anglican Church certainly yeah. at the time, yeah. uh, and and most Protestant churches as well. I mean, it was a, it was a it was a marginal thing, really. Um, but it basically believes this is the, this is its uh, absurd belief. It believes that all the Jews have to be 
put back into Israel in order for the second coming to take place. Second coming of Jesus Christ to take place. This is their belief. And it is a Protestant misreading of the Gospels, Mm. of of the, uh, the Bible. It's basically where real theologians, proper theologians, um, had these do-it-yourself theologians putting together this absurd concept. Yeah. But it had devastating consequences. Um, it became very fashionable amongst certain members of the aristocracy during the 19th century. Because yeah. the aristocracies love eccentric things, you know? This is a part of their, their, their entertainment. And several of the prime ministers played with it. And, that con- and, and the concept of a, a land without people for a people without land actually comes out of Christian Zionism. And so one of the um, people who became a Christian Zionist was uh, Lord... Lord um, Salisbury? No, no, the one of the... Um, the Declaration. The, uh, about Balfour. Balfour. So... Balfour was prime minister at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He brought in the most draconian immigration laws. Yes. Because at that time, there were hundreds of thousands of Jews coming out of Russia and East Europe. And we blocked them from coming into this country and they went to America, which at that time was open. And basically, the Christian Zionists were not doing this because they loved the Jews. They were doing it because of the desire to hurry on the second coming of Jesus Christ. But of course, there were those who were interested in the uh, in, in bringing the Jews into Christianity, in converting them into Christianity. We go forward to the, second, the First World War, and this is where the great tragedy takes place, and where you have the marriage between Christian Zionism and Zionism as we know it. Balfour was foreign minister, and Lloyd George was prime minister. And Lloyd George has become friends with Weissman, who was the second leader of Zionism, who was a chemist and who had been providing the British war effort with explosives. 
And the person who was in charge of munitions at the beginning of the war was Lloyd George. So he'd become friends with Weissman and he'd become very excited about the whole Zionist affair. So you had Balfour, a Christian Zionist, and you had David Lloyd George. And so they produced this devastating declaration which promised that the British would support the creation of a homeland for the Jews in Palestine. Now, one thing which is very important, that is very, 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 uh, I've hardly seen it mentioned, is that in the cabinet at that time, there was a Jew, Lord Montague. Now, Lord Montague was an Orthodox Jew who had done extremely well with his family in this country and who wrote this incredible memorandum absolutely opposing the Balfour Declaration. In it, he talks about Zionism as being a mischievous political idea. And he literally places before the government the full catastrophe that would happen if they went ahead with this idea and it actually became realized. He talks about, there are people there already. What are you going to do with the people who are there already? Then he talked about the fact there is no such thing as the, as, as the, uh, the, 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 the Jewish uh, nation. We are a, a religion. We are identified by our religion. He talked about how if you, if you place this uh, Jewish state, you are going to create the greatest anti-Semitic act in history because everybody is going to want their Jews to go to that place. Now, what is interesting is that that is exactly what happened with Arab Jewry. Because the Arabs, the, uh, the Arab Jews did not experience or have the same narrative of persecution and horror that the Jews under Christendom had, had suffered. They were fully integrated into their Arab communities. Arabic was their language, was their culture, and they had their religion. And they were fully engaged in that. I mean, Baghdad at the time, a third of the population of Baghdad was Jewish. And you had rich merchants, you had scholars, you had every kind of person who was integrated into that society. So they didn't have this narrative. With the state of Israel, and you got the whole nationalist thing taking off, Mm. they found themselves in a position where they were identified with Israel and they had to leave their countries. And they had to go to Israel as second-class citizens because the European Jews who founded, who were the Zionists who founded uh, Israel looked upon their Arab Jews as inferior so the Arab Jews had to get rid of their Arab culture. Yeah. They had to re- literally, it was, a, it was an incredible thing that happened. It was one of the great disruptions. Right. It was the disruption of Arab Jewry. So the, um, 
Christian Zionism yeah. basically made possible because there was another person in the cabinet who was a, a Jew and who was a Zionist. And as soon as the British had the mandate after the war, because after the First World War, with the conquest of the Ottomans, uh, the British took over Palestine as a mandate from the United Nations. Yes. The first governor from Britain we sent out there was Herbert Samuel, who was a Zionist Jew. And, of course, we then started you know, making it possible for the Jews to come into, for the Zionists to pour into, into uh, Palestine. Now, if you read some of the writings and, and the speeches of people like Arthur Balfour or David Lloyd George, you could also get the impression that there is a, a crusading undertone in, in much of their language. Like how much of the Palestine mandate was a fulfillment of a more historic enmity between Christendom and Islam? I don't know very much about this, and, and, but, but my impression is that I don't think this counted for very much by then. Mm. I think that the whole of the early years of, uh, of Israel was political, right. secular. Yeah. I think the British were far more interested in the fact that they wanted a, a foothold there to, to look after the Suez Canal and as a strategic base, which was European, in dealing with that world and the importance of it. Um, I think by that time, the Crusades were a very long, very long time away. Mm. The, the Muslim world had been completely subjugated. Mm. And I don't think it was a, I don't think that that was a major issue. Right. But it was certainly, we were still, as we, in the 20s, we were still deeply a colonial power. We were deeply a colonial power. So it belongs much more to the sort of colonized situation. Because I remember as my upbringing, in terms of my being prepared to be a, a member of the British Empire or, 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 or factotum or whatever you might call it, yeah. um, this never came up. This never really came up. I mean, we, we, one, one saw the, the rest of the world, starting with with the French as, as being uh, uh, inferior. So it wasn't, it was a, it was a very, uh, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the sense of the superiority of the British was, was formidable. So can I talk about that cultural supremacy that Zionism came out of? Zionism was forged in the 19th century where Europeans were using science and scientific discovery to accommodate their cultural and ethnic chauvinism, um, how much of that ideological trend exists even today when viewing the Orient or Africa or, or in this case, uh, the slaughter that is in, in Gaza? I don't think that the West has got rid of its deep sense of superiority. Right. Um, I don't think even the British in terms of the governing classes. Um, but I think what is much more interesting or much more seminal at the moment mm. is that what has appeared in Israel 
that that concoction of Zionism in the 19th century has now grown into a monster. Because you have a state which, of course, is a, a state that is exclusive in terms of its race. Yes. A state that is absolutely a, a nationalist state, of, of, of a fanatical nationalist state, a state which um, has completely made the other, the Palestine, Palestinian, in, into a, a subhuman, mm. and it has oppressed them in a way that is unimaginable. A state that is practicing apartheid, a state that is literally um, creating the two most horrible things imaginable. It, 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 it genocide and ethnic cleansing of a people yeah. before our very eyes. A state that is dealing with children in a way that is unspeakable and a state that is calling out that it is the victim, which is, which is, which is strange. So it, it's a kind of, almost the kind of pathology that has taken place. And it is so far from the nature of the traditional Jew that the traditional Jew is now saying this Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with us. And the, the monstrosity of it is that the only thing that you can compare it to is the very state that was responsible for the Holocaust. That is what is so terrifying. It is a state that has become, you know, there's a kind of madness and a kind of hysteria that is taking place. So this is where you have the incredible danger of ideas. Look at the way that uh, Marx thought up communism, Marxism. Yeah. Ideas in the British Museum sitting there putting together these ideas and the devastation that it heaped upon the world. Well, Zionism is the same. Zionism is a human construct that is put together where the spiritual, those that are responsible for the sacred, are saying this thing is an abomination. That's what they're saying. And the proof of it is a hundred years of suffering, conflict, wars, devastation, uprootings, oppression. That's the reality. That is what has happened over the last hundred years with Zionism. And it's time that the West woke up because this is really a, a moment when we have reached the point where the rest of the world can see it clearly. You're absolutely right. Yet there is a stubborn vindication of Zionism in Western establishment circles. Uh, what accounts for this? Well, as I say, I think it's to do with the fact that the, uh, uh, as I say, from my point of view, the, the Zionists, they, they put together a story. Mm. They, were, they, they were engaged, they were the subject of a horror that is beyond imagining. Yeah. The guilt 
of the West. Imagine Europeans who believe that they are the last, the final word in civilization. Germany, most civilized place, all the music and the philosophy and the literature and the art that's come out of Germany. And then suddenly it produces a horror which is amongst the greatest horrors of, 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 of all time. What do we do? The guilt. And what we have done is we have put our guilt across to a place that was guiltless. The Arabs were guiltless. The Palestinians lived in peace. Muslims, Christians and Jews going back to the beginning, living as one, in one culture. And the rabbi of Jerusalem, when the United Nations was putting together this partition, begged them not to give it to the Zionists. The rabbi of Jerusalem, and this is something that the Zionists have kept so quiet but is now coming out. The voice of the true Jews are being heard. Mm. So when we talk about uh, this, this kind of amazing uh, brainwashing that's taken place, let's just look at the story they've told. There are four aspects to their story. The first aspect is that it was a land without a people for a people without a land. What a silly idea. It was a beautiful land. It was a land that was in which the 450 lovely villages where the people were farming the land in a way that was sustainable forever and had been doing it forever were then literally taken and with the Nakba were, were evicted, destroyed, killed and had to go and and, and, and uh, into, into camps. What are we talking about? A land without a people for a people without land. And then you have the, the story that it was a desert. We made the desert bloom. I heard this as a child. This was the great thing. Yeah. They had come with all their modern fervor and they were making the desert bloom. Mm-hmm. And then there were the stories that... There's no such thing as Palestinians. They're just wandering Arabs. You know, they're Arabs. I mean, you can, Arab can go anywhere. They can go to Egypt, they can go to Syria, they can go to, you know, uh, Jordan, they can go anywhere. Bedouins, yeah. But the Arab, what are they talking about? The Egyptians are the most ancient people on the earth. The, the, uh, the Palestinians have been there forever. The Syrians are a Syrian people. All of them. They're unified by Arabic, by Islam or by Christianity or whatever it is their religion. But they are as different as the French are to the English, to the Germans, to the Spanish, to whatever. And this is again one of the things which the story, which the Zionists are telling now, is getting more and more desperate. I've heard this story from several sources, including from their prime minister, 
they talk about the fact that the the Jews were in Palestine and the ones who got rid of them and evicted them from Palestine were the Arabs in the 7th century. Can you imagine something so incredible? And, they, and, and this was uh, Netanyahu talking to, 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 to uh, Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson was looking, you know, it was, oh, really, it was amazing. How could they? How many Arabs came out of Arabia? How many Arabs came out of Arabia? They culturally transformed the area. They didn't upset the, uh, the people. And anyway, the, the, it's this make-believe. They're having to tell more and more fantastical stories. Yeah. And then we come to the final one, Yes. the final story, which is a story that they were there 2,000 years ago. It was yeah. their homeland. And they're coming to reclaim their homeland. But it's also the homeland of the Christians. The whole story of Christianity. It's also the homeland of the of the Muslims. It's the whole story of Islam. Jerusalem is the city of the three great faiths. And that was honored by Islam and is being dishonored by Zionism. That's the reality. So this is where you this is the story that was told, and it's the story that the Westerns had. But I must say, I never expected to see what I've seen today. Really? I never expected it. I never expected the people in the West and in governments, our own English government, to behave in the way they have behaved. You know, against something that is so horrific, that is so clearly evil. Yeah. And for them to literally not deal with it. And this country... I've been watching the front pages of the newspapers now for three or four weeks. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. It is incredible. So we are going to pay a very heavy price because we have lost all moral authority in the world because everyone can see what is happening. Everyone can see what is happening who is not encased in the Zionist illusion because it's an illusion. It's an illusion. Brother Ahmed, how much do you see Zionism as almost a project that's intertwined with a greater civilizing mission of the West in the Muslim world? No, I think that Zionism is a, is a very particular, yeah. very distinct thing. But it's almost like, you know, it's at a time when colonialism was, was finishing mm. and this colonialism suddenly comes into existence. And it is um, a colonialism which won't go away because where they, where they chose to go was a place of deep interest which connects into the whole world. And so it's, it's, it's uh, as a problem, as a crisis, it's clearly coming to its head. It's clearly coming to its head. And what is incredible is that what is actually taking place in Palestine, in that beautiful area, is the final uh, project of the religious Zionists. Because the secular Zionists were responsible for establishing the state of Israel. 
They were running it. Ben-Gurion, all these people were not religious men. And they were not interested in the religious aspect. They were concerned with a secular state. And then by the 1970s, the Likud party, the, the, the religious Zionists, started taking over and taking over the power. Now they have completely entrenched themselves. Their, their scheme is very simple, and they've announced it. And this is what is incredible. They ha are telling us exactly what they are doing. They're telling us. And in Hebrew... They're telling the whole people, everybody's got, got caught up in this, which is this. First of all, they're taking over the West Bank. From the river to the sea. That is stated in their manifesto, and it's stated in every, by government ministers, by the press, by everybody. Yeah. What is the proof of this? On what is supposed to be uh, land that belongs to the Palestinians, they have 700,000 fanatical religious Zionists, fanatical settlers. Yeah. settlers in settlements that are armed to the teeth and they are busy evicting and terrorizing the Palestinians. That is happening before our eyes. It's illegal. And it's been illegal for the last 30 years. And the West has done nothing. Mm. But now they're getting to the point where they're actually completing their pro program there. They are, in Gaza, literally finishing Gaza. Bombing it so that there's nothing left in order to get rid of the people. Yeah. And most important of all, in the Holy Sanctuary, Al-Aqsa. Up until a few years ago, the Jews were not allowed onto the Holy, holy uh, Site. Mm. And this was, this was a traditional Orthodox not permitting. Mm. The Orthodox Jew would not allow the Jews to return to that until the coming of the Messiah. In the last few years, the army has been keeping the Muslims out and allowing Jews more and more and more and these settlers to come onto the holy site. What happened on October the 7th was called Al-Aqsa Flood. Al-Aqsa Flood. The final act of the religious Zionists is to build the temple. They've already designed it. They've already got, uh, they built columns and things. Every year they run through the city of Jerusalem with the foundation stones to the gate of the holy, of, 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 of the Al-Aqsa. Every year. This is their intention. And I don't think anyone alive should be under any misapprehension that this kind of fanatical delusion that they are under that they are bringing the Messiah mm. should be under, underrated. Can I ask you one final question? Um, and this is really a question about us, a Muslim ummah in the Muslim world. Now, we've witnessed the horrible events, the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. You've lived through uh, a much turbulent time of the Muslim ummah. We've been through, for the last few decades, maybe the last century, we've been through 
uh, a lot of harm and a lot of decline. Um, do you live in hope that the Muslim Ummah can escape our current weakness? Well, I would question the weakness for a start because, I mean, nobody can look at what's going on in Gaza yeah. and see the, the faith and the beauty of those people and the children Absolutely. and the way they're re responding to this without saying, Alhamdulillah, this is something remarkable. Yeah. So I would, I would question the weakness. Yeah. I would say that we are living in the age of crisis. Mm -hmm. We are living at a time when the whole modern project is in jeopardy. Wow. We are destroying the environment. We have the problems of global warming. The destruction of the forests is, uh, is releasing pandemics. Yeah. We have a financial structure which is insane. We have extreme poverty in the world. We have the huge migration of people because of poverty. We have states in the West which are breaking up into opposing factions, like in America, where politics is becoming uh, completely problematic. We are living in a time of the great crises. And most important of all, we're living at the time when the whole moral rectitude of the human being is being undermined. The, I always like to finish with this, uh, what I consider to be the greatest crime of modernity, which is the destruction of childhood. We're living at a time when children are literally being prepared to become little consumers, where their childhood is being robbed from them, where they are being confused so much about who they are and what their identity is. And this process of the destruction of childhood is, is the greatest crime that humanity can actually be uh, accused of. I call it the dialysis of the imagination. Childhood, that first seven years, the child is more with his maker than he is with us. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. We come from him. We come from him. We return. And the children have just arrived. And they arrive and the baraka is so glorious that the mother, for 40 days, people just bring things to her. She doesn't move. That baby is sacred. It's so full of baraka. And then during that first seven years in, in, in Islam, the baby, the child is there to play. You don't, you don't force it to pray. You let them play. What are they doing? They're playing with their mates, with, their, with the other children, with their brothers and cousins and friends and the rest of it. And they have these epic games where one minute they're crying, the next minute they're laughing. They go through the business of being a child, a little one, and then they grow up until they're the leader. And some of them follow, some of them are leaders, and they're all playing these epic games, which we human beings, we 
grown-ups have no part of. We don't, we can't, and uh, we can't enter into their imaginations because what they have is pure spirit, and they have senses, and through those senses they can experience everything. They can turn a, a, a piece of wood into a, a, a wonderful sword. They can become a prince, or you know anything you can imagine. This is childhood. And then when they get to the age of seven or eight, they go through a major transformation where suddenly the two sides start appearing. The age of discernment takes place. And, and they start knowing. Up until that time, they are unitive. A child, this childhood, they are at one. They're in the moment. There's no future, there's no past. They're present. And then they start in that discernment. And it's at that point, traditionally, you teach them. And then when they get to 13 or 14, you get the next great change, which is the moment when they become your friend. It's the time when they become apprentice to an adult. And through that process, when they go through the most dramatic process of turning from a child into a grown person, mature person, they are their whole ambition is to become an adult, to be like their uncle or to be a soldier or to be a craftsman or to be whatever it may be. But they want to become that. What have we done? We've created our own consumer idea of childhood. The grown-ups have created their idea of childhood. They've created all these toys, like these plastic toys, which make funny noise, you know, all these funny noises and things. And the child comes and it looks at it and it becomes absolutely mesmerized by it. And then it gets bored, it wants another one. And you have to replace it because it's complete. There's nothing to do with it. It, nothing, it doesn't come out of the, the imagination of the child. It is what I call the dialysis of the imagination. It is an external imagination that is controlling them. And then they get bored if you don't have something. And now they have this mobile phones, they have these screens, which are forever engaging them, destroying their own imaginations. So they become caught into this world of continuous stimulation from outside. When they come then to the end, they don't create, their, the parents are all, you know, this, this helicopter parents thing, they're always supervising them, over them. They can't go out. They can't create their own world. So when they get to the age of 14, 12, 14, when they get to that big stage where they're, where they're ready to, to go into the adulthood, the journey into adulthood, then they make their rebellion and they try to create their own society. And you get the great rebellion. So this is the this is the thing. So whenever I'm asked when I've been giving a talk or anything, you know, what should you do? Reclaim childhood. Now, when we talk about the Muslims, the family is still strong with Muslims. The Muslims are still very strong in their religion. Their relationship with Almighty Allah is still very strong. We have wonderful teachers. We have wonderful sheikhs. I, I'm sitting in Cambridge seeing a, an amazing generation of young Muslims at, at, coming to the university 
who are intact morally. Their grandparents and their parents have done an incredible job. So I believe Almighty Allah has a wonderful thing in store for us. But it is that we are living now in the age where a storm is raging around us. And the, what is happening in, in uh, Palestine, in Israel, is, is a part of that storm. That is a storm. For the Muslims, we are now living in the age of witness and refuge. Witnessing the truth, as you are trying to do. As we are trying to do in this, we're trying to see this whole epic thing that is happening and striving, try to understand it. Witnessing to the truth. And Islam is the refuge. This is the refuge for, for people who are now battered by this terrifying storm that is raging around us on every level. So alhamdulillah, as far as I'm concerned, I can only see from Almighty Allah this great compassion and mercy that he's providing for us. And, and, and seeing what is happening in Gaza and the people, the way the people are, are, are giving such a, an incredible example to what is, is the real the Islam of the heart, the, the love of, of Almighty Allah. Ahmed Bokila, it's been a fascinating interview. Jazakallah khair. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.